cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, May 15th, 2012. Mm-mm. Okay, I should let you know, we're going to do our light edition for the week today have a family thing that came up. Good one, but you know, I, I'll have to give details a few days later, but thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we're doing the comparative work. Now, once a week, uh, you know, I do a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. It doesn't mean the topic is light and fluffy. In fact, many times the topics are actually pretty weighty, substantial, meaty, uh, important stuff. And so the idea is this, is that uh, this is a teaching program. This is about learning discernment. But learning discernment also requires you to not only know what's going wrong, but also to understand what is the historic Christian faith and you know and so to understand things rightly so once a week i try to hand the microphone over to people who at least know their stuff and at least yeah people better than me know their stuff but uh, what we're going to be doing this week is uh, pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley of uh, Bethel Evangelical Free Church at Hanley Stoke on Trent well he has uh, been doing a series uh, entitled, uh, You Might Have Asked. Might, you might have asked. And so the question that he, this is kind of an apologetics type, uh, sermon lecture. And, uh, the idea behind it is, is that, uh, he's gonna tackle, you know, common questions that people may have regarding Christianity. The question that he's tackling in this edition is entitled, History or Myth? Is the Bible Reliable, and he's chosen for his text for this particular uh, sermon lecture. You know, uh, 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 well, <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Second uh, Peter chapter two uh, verses uh, twelve through twenty-one. And so, without any further ado, we're going to just dive right into it. Here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Uh, History or myth? Is the Bible reliable? Here we go. 
Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the second letter of the Apostle Peter and chapter 1, 2nd Peter chapter 1. Peter is writing this towards the end of his life, looking back on a life much of which has been spent in the service of the Lord Jesus. So, 2nd Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruptions in the world to lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will not be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables where we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice. which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We trust God to add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, we are considering for these four weeks, these four big questions that 
people ask these four questions that to a certain extent are made by some objections to the Christian faith. And our question this morning is extremely important one. Is the Bible reliable? Christians and particularly Protestants have always insisted that the Bible is the foundation of our faith, the foundation of what we believe. And so it's absolutely vital that we ask this question, is it reliable? Can we rely upon what the Bible says? Now this question can be taken in two different ways and in fact I found when I've spoken with people on the streets in particular that it is taken in two rather different ways and quite often people confuse the two together when they're asking the question one person can mean does the Bible contain particularly the New Testament and the Gospels a, an accurate account of history Another person asked it thinking, and particularly the Muslims will bring this up more as an objection than a, a question they have an answer to, whether the Bible we have today represents what was originally written nearly 2,000 years ago. And sometimes people mash these two together. I once had somebody ask me, well, some talk about errors of the Bible, and I said, well, what errors do you mean? And immediately he said, well, there's over 200,000 differences in the Bible manuscripts. And I said, well, that's not the same as what you said originally. Because obviously, differences between copies is not the same as mistakes made in recording what was written down. But they're both very important questions. We may say the first one is the relation of the Bible to history, the second the effect of history upon the Bible. And they are both extremely important. Now, we have a little over 30 minutes this morning to deal with this. I can't get to all of it. It's a massive subject. We have, uh, if you're interested, some books in the bookshop which is open on, well not this coming Monday because it's a bank holiday, but open normally on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays from 12 till 2. And we have some books in the bookshop that will expand upon what I'm saying here. And so we'll concentrate on the New Testament again because of time. And particularly what does the New Testament say about Jesus First of all, we have this question, the Bible and history. Is the Bible history? And the first thing we have to do is dismiss the, the modernist myth of the objective historian. The historian who stands in Olympian detachment from his subject. I know a little bit about historians. It happens that my father's one and my twin brother is also one. So I know some historians, and obviously with my, my dad's job, I've come into contact with quite a few historians in my time. And I'll tell you this first of all, a historian never writes about a subject he's not interested in. It's one of the perks of being a historian, whereas at school, at college, you've got to write essays about things you don't like. Once you are a historian, you get to write about the things that you enjoy writing about. 
And every historian is a human being. They bring themselves to the table. They bring themselves to the task. And a historian who is a Marxist will have a completely different view of history than a historian who is a died-in-the-wall Tory. Neither will be absolutely neutral, because they can't be. Historians are human beings. And so, the idea that some people have that, well, you see, the Bible cannot be history, the Gospels cannot be accurate history, because the people who wrote them had an interest in what they were saying, is nonsense. It's based on a completely false idea of historical writing and a view of human nature that is quite contrary to reality. Historians, they try to be objective, they try to set down what really happened, but they always bring themselves and they always bring their own interest as to there is a reason why the historian takes his pen and writes the book because he wants people to know something that he is excited by and you can tell incidentally if you ever read a book by an unsympathetic historian it was my misfortune some years ago to read the biography of John Wesley by someone who really didn't like John Wesley it's a horrible book and the only thing that made it at all fun to read was that the vast number of printer's errors in the particular volume, but that's another matter. So, can we trust the Bible as history? Can we trust the Gospels as history? You will find there are some people who will say, well, the Bible's not meant to be history. The Gospels aren't meant to be history. About 1900, there was a German writer who made the, the claim that Jesus never existed. That the Gospels are in fact myth, recording not what really happened, but a timeless story that never happened. In other words, that when the Gospel writers sat down, they were trying to write fiction. And particularly today, you will find this pushed by a couple of popular films on the internet, called Zeitgeist, which is a enormously fun to watch and enormously riddled with errors. It's a, it's a conspiracy theory film that has three parts. One part is about Christianity, the second part is about 9-11 and the Twin Towers, the third part is about international banking. It's great fun to watch, but it's complete nonsense. The other one is a film called The God Who Wasn't There. And both of these argue the Gospels are myth, not history. The problem is, first of all, that this argument first appears about a hundred years ago. In other words, it's not people right back towards the beginning of the Christian story, of the Christian history, who say, well, Jesus never existed. It's people who live at the very end of the 19th century who say this. It's not people in the first, second, third, fourth centuries who are saying well you know he never existed, it's people now, and you have to think hang on a minute, all things considered who is more likely to know whether these things happened or not people who lived right back at the time they're supposed to have happened, or people living nearly 2,000 years later 
And why is it that if they were written as myth or fiction all those years ago, that nobody noticed until 2,000 years later? And the answer is, of course, that they're not myth. They are history. People try to make connections, and this is these two films I mentioned, Zeitgeist and The God Who Wasn't There, they tried to make connections and parallels between the Gospels and the Greek myths, and the Egyptian myths. Um, you will find some lists on the internet, particularly I think it's Zeitgeist had this great list of parallels between the Egyptian god Horus and Jesus. And Going through this film, I start to think, hang on a minute, this list isn't true. Because it so happens that uh, I was a very strange lad, I'm sure. I had an interest at one point in Egyptian myths. You know, Egyptology is so exciting, the mummies and all the vivid pictures and everything. And I actually read quite a bit of, obviously, children's level retellings of the Egyptian myths. I remember there being a retelling of the Egyptian myths um, series on on the radio at some point. So, and I kept up a certain amount of reading on the Egyptian myths. So, hang on a minute. This isn't hot. It wasn't. What someone had done is they've taken a series of factual claims about Jesus. You know, Jesus is born of a virgin. Jesus is called the Son of God. Jesus has twelve disciples. Jesus is crucified. He dies a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And they just said, and the Egyptians said the same about their gods. But they didn't. So a lot of these claims have just been made up. There's a list somewhere on the internet of dying and rising saviour gods. Now this list is about hundred years old. And there are scholars who have taken up this list and looked and said, hang on a minute, several of these people don't actually exist. These are gods that were made up by a writer a hundred years ago. But some of the parallels that are appealed to are very silly. I listened in preparing for this to a, a debate on the question, is the Bible a myth? And the man who was trying to say it was got up and he said, well, you know, in the, in the Odyssey of Homer, he was trying to do this parallels between Homer and the Bible. He said, in the Odyssey of Homer, I think the Iliad, the, the, the story on which the film Troy is based, um, in the Iliad, people get into a boat and sit down. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus' and the disciples get into a boat and sit down. And I thought, hang on a minute, last time I got into a boat, I sat down. And in fact, if you get into a boat, they say, sit down and you'll fall over the side. So yes, people get into a boat and sit down, but people get into boats and sit down all the time. And these are the sort of claims that people are bringing. But actually, when you look at it, you say, well, no, the Bible, the Gospels are not myth. You see, the myths are of two kinds. First of all, there are myths like the Egyptian myths. Now, the Egyptian myths deal with the far-off golden age that occurred at some point in the past, long ago. It's almost like Star Wars a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. When the gods lived among men, and they occur in, in, a, 
a, a mythical world that never was. Or they are told of great leaders long after they died. So after Alexander the Great died, there were myths spread abroad that he was the son of a god. But they're very different from what we find in the Bible. The Bible, the Gospels are set in first century Palestine, first century Judea. They are not set in some distant far off time that is fictional. They are set in reality. We have real people in the Gospels, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas the High Priest. A few years ago, in fact, they found Caiaphas the High Priest, or what was left of him. They found his tomb. These are real people, real places, real events, real men. They refer to real people living in a real historical setting. So then we have the question, are the Gospels reliable history? Now in ancient times a lot of emphasis was placed on the importance of the eyewitnesses, hence what I said to the children. And we understand that. To take one good example, a hundred years ago the Titanic sank, and we would think very little of a book on the sinking of the Titanic that did not draw upon eyewitness accounts of the sinking, did not draw upon the records of those who survived the wreck. And the same is true of the New Testament. People demanded in the first century, eyewitness accounts. So Peter says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The Apostle John says we beheld his glory, the glory of Christ, even the, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. The, uh, the writer of Luke, the man who wrote Luke's Gospel in the book of Acts, tells us beginning of the Gospel of Luke, inasmuch as many have taken hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. So he's saying, I have talked with the eyewitnesses. Matthew tells us that he was an eyewitness. The consistent record of the book of Mark is that Mark was a companion of the Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness. And so you have these eyewitnesses of Christ, these people who heard and saw, and they record what they heard and what they saw. They are not making things up, they are not drawing upon secondary sources, they are either eyewitnesses or they have spoken with eyewitnesses. So are they? Well, there are two things that we can do, we can look at, that make it very, very probable that they were eyewitnesses, that confirm indeed that they were. First of all, the details are vivid and consistent. And secondly, there are details in the Gospels 
that people who were making things up would not have said. Details, I'm sure you you know, are the first things to go when a story is passed around. People miss out the details. You have the, the basic outline of the story, but details, names, places, exact wordings, they go. So when we get a story that's very lacking in detail, we can say, well, it's quite probable it's second hand. Or when the details are fantastic, or full of conflict, so we can say, well, the details have been added later. Now, one detail that is extremely important is names. You probably know that the relative popularity of names changes. So that certain names can be very good indicators of a person's age. So you hear of a man named Donald, the chances are he's going to be over 50 years old. Because it's just to do with the popularity of the names. Well, nowadays the name Noah is very common among young children. But Noah is a very, very rare name 20 years ago. Names have their, their cycles. And again, it's in different places, you look at the top ten boys' names in France, they'd be very different from the top ten boys' names in England. And you compare countries, like, you know, I, before I came here, I was ministering in South Wales, and the most common man, man's name in Wales is David. In England it's John, or has been in the past. And so what this means is if somebody is writing about a particular time and place, but is actually removed from that time and place, they are going to get the names wrong. You'll have a distribution of names that is just bizarre. It would be very interesting, I haven't done it, I don't know anyone has, to look at historical fiction. It works with historical fiction. And you will find, probably, that the distributions of names are wrong. Because the person writing it is using their own preferences for names. But when we look at the Gospels, we find the distribution of names is exactly what we would expect, and we can find this out from particularly burial inscriptions. The distribution of names is what we would expect from someone living in first century Judea. You look at the Bible and you find, well, you, you'll probably notice that there's an awful lot of Marys in the Gospels. There's an awful lot of women called Mary. And you may have wondered, why is this? Well, the answer simply is Mary was the most popular name at the time. Nearly one quarter of all women in first century Judea were called Mary. And this is why you commonly have something supplied with that woman's name, Mary of Magdala. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because you've got to have something to identify one Mary from another. And they didn't have surnames in the modern sense back then. You look at the men's names, and the top two men's names in the Gospels are Simon and Joseph, which together make up about 18% of all the men's names in the Gospels. And we find that about 16% of people in first century Judea, men in first century Judea, had one or other of these names. And it's only a 2% difference, what you'd expect if you were looking at just a sample of the population. 
And we find the top ten men's names in the Gospels are the top ten men's names in first century Judea. It all fits together. And so we can tell that the person who wrote this knew how people's names were distributed, not that he'd done a statistical study, he simply knew people in that land in that time and so of course the names he recalls are the names that were used then. Another thing is geography. Geography matters and geography is very easy to get wrong. I mean how many people are there who know Stoke-on-Trent? I was speaking with somebody a while ago and they, I mentioned the six towns, he said oh yes it includes Newcastle. Well, of course, Newcastle, under line, is not one of the six towns of the Potteries. And if somebody is writing about the Potteries, talking about the Potteries, and refers to Newcastle as one of the six towns, you know they're not from Stoke or Newcastle. Geography matters. It's easy to get geography mixed up. If you live at a great distance, it's amazing how the Americans find it so difficult to, di- to distinguish between Wales and England. Because they're so far away. When I was a student, there was, to talk about geography of the, the Holy Land now, when I was a student, there was a series of books called Left Behind that were very, very popular in Christian circles. They're not. I wouldn't advise anyone to read them, spare yourself the pain. But the point is that these, these books refer to excursion steamers on the River Jordan. Now these are books written about 20 years ago now, with the internet still its infancy. But still these people have access to travel books, and they could have found out pretty easily that the River Jordan is not navigable. But they've got people taking big, big ships up the River Jordan. And you look at that and you say, this is written by somebody who's living hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away from the Holy Land, because if they were anywhere near it, they'd know you can't take a ship up the River Jordan. And we find none of these sort of errors of detail of geography in the Gospels. They get the geography right, they get the distances right, they get one of the most difficult things, which is how long does it take to go from one place to another right. And the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, some 40 years after the life of Jesus. So many of the details about the city were destroyed. And yet we find that the Gospels correspond with recent archaeological discoveries of places that were destroyed in AD 70. The people have not known existed hundred years after the life of Christ. And there are little details in the book, The Da Vinci Code, which makes amazing claims about its accuracy. Dan Brown describes the Temple Church in London, the Round Church just off Fleet Street. And he's been to the building. I think. I'm not sure he has. Because if he'd been inside, he would not have done what he does in the book. 
he turns the building round. He describes the nave as the chancel, the chancel as the nave. He gets the building back to front. These are silly little errors of detail that modern novelists make. And we find none of them in the Gospels. And all the Gospel writers include details that someone who was fabricating a story would not include. In the first century, first century Judea, the evidence of women was generally discounted. It was, in that respect, quite sexist, like Islamists, where the evidence of a woman is half that of a man. And yet the Gospels all have the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus, who are the first witnesses. They're women. You wouldn't do that if you were making things up. If you were fabricating things, you would have men find it. We know what fabricated Gospels look like, we've got some. And they're fantastical in the miracles. None of that in the New Testament. And of course, the Gospel writers often have the apostles, the founders of the primitive church, doing incredibly stupid things, saying incredibly stupid things. Peter comes across in many, many scenes as not terribly bright. Jesus says something and he grabs gleefully the wrong end of the stick and says, Oh yes! And you think, no Peter. Now again, this is one of the great founders of the church. You wouldn't make things up to make one of the great founders of the church look rather foolish. Then we have the second point, I shall have to get a move on with this, textual variation, the effect of history on the Gospels. There are some people who say, well, if the Bible's inspired, I think one man, Bart Ehrman, he teaches in a university in the States, his books have sold quite well, who says if the gospel, if the Bible is inspired, there'd be no textual variation. Now textual variation is very simply that you have differences between the manuscripts. Now before the invention of the printing press in about the late 15th, early 16th centuries, every book had to be copied out by hand. If you wanted to copy the Bible, you had to get one that someone had copied out by hand. And all of these copies are different. Copyists make mistakes. So do typesetters. But in the typesetter, of course, every copy in that print run has the same mistakes. And if you ever tried to copy something out by hand, copy something out longhand, you know you make mistakes. You, mi- you misspell words, you miss words out, you repeat words. And in fact, we find with the manuscripts of the New Testament that all of them contain basically the same errors people make today. The same errors you will find students taking notes, making people copying out bits of a book. Certainly back in the day before you had computers, people would be copying out bits of a book, take them back, assemble them, and find out they missed bits out. And so people ask the question, well, if what we have today are copies of copies of copies, not the originals, copies of copies of copies, how do we know what they said? James Cameron, the director of the film Titanic, said, 
The Gospels as we know them today have been edited by church fathers, centuries after the original words were spoken, to conform to their subsequent vision of orthodoxy. Is that true? It's a good question. But first of all, we have to, to, to ask the question, what's the evidence? Well, we have over 5,500 copy, ancient manuscript copies of bits of the New Testament, or the whole New Testament. Over 5,500 manuscripts. Whereas, the next best attested document of antiquity is the Iliad of Homer, which has less than a thousand surviving manuscripts. The oldest New Testament manuscripts we've got are from somewhere about 50 years at the most, although I'm told that a few very, very, very old ones have been discovered, but they haven't been released yet. But we've got some manuscripts, bits of manuscripts from less than a hundred years after the Gospels were written. People said that's a long time, 50, 60 years. Yes, but there are 500 years between Homer writing his Iliad and the oldest surviving manuscripts. And yet people don't say, we've got no idea what the Iliad originally said. They say, well, we've got a pretty good idea what the Iliad originally said. And there are several factors that mean that we can be quite sure that we have the original text of the New Testament. The first one is the origin of the text in various different places. The Gospels were not all written in the same place. The letters of the Apostles were not all written in the same place. And they were sent to other places. Paul's letters, most of them have addresses on them. And there are addresses all over the ancient world, from Rome to Galatia. And they've gone everywhere. And so at no point does anyone have control over the text. There's no point at which anyone can sit down and alter it. Because all these different churches have the text. It's gone all over the world, more or less. So no one could have called in every manuscript and said, right, I'll change it. We have ancient fragments that were lost and buried in the sands of Egypt, centuries before Constantine came to power. They were lost. They could not be changed because they were lost. And we find in the New Testament that when a reading enters the manuscript tradition, it stays there even if it's a very obvious and very stupid mistake. We've had, we have copies where scribes have copied a mistake that makes no sense at all. There's a, they've got a text in front of them and it makes no sense and they've copied it. Why? Because they were told to make a copy of that document. And they said, not my business to change the What's in front of me? Just write it out. So the truth is, yes, there are over 300,000 textual variants in the New Testament. Over 300, now that's more variants than there are words. And that sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? Except that ni- over 95% of them have no effect on the text whatsoever. 
we know the mistakes scribes made because of the same mistakes people make today people skip lines they write down what they think the text says imagine you've got a, a scribe he's been reading Matthew in his morning devotions he's copying Mark and he comes across a story that's in Mark and Matthew and he's writing down and he thinks oh yes I know how this goes and he writes down Matthew and not Mark so we go oh yes we know how that works well you're copying someone whose handwriting is dreadful I'm glad no one has to copy my handwriting or the light is bad the light's going in you don't have a candle or, and we have actually got a manuscript where someone's written the margin it's blowing it. my ink is freezing, my ink is frozen there's a blizzard outside and my hand has nearly frozen and just written the margin telling us how horrible the conditions were you can imagine a man's hand is shaking from the cold and the light's not good because it's a blizzard and there's no glass in the windows because they didn't have glass imagine all the mistakes he's going to make and we know but you see every copyist makes a different mistake they don't all do the same thing and some of these were given by dictation you'd have a man at the front that's how you do multiple copies in the ancient world you'd have a man at the front and all these people will be writing and he will be reading what happens when you come to the word there in English if you look at the internet today by the way you can find that the vast majority of modern young people do not know the difference between the various words that are pronounced there and the man says there and the copyist doesn't know which particular word pronounced there is meant and so he writes down what he thinks is meant, it's wrong copyists make spelling errors, some of them were not terribly literate some of them were dealing with a language that wasn't the one they normally spoke so they make mistakes or if you're copying a manuscript you come down and you find a note in the margin you think well, is this note in the margin a scribe writing in, oops I missed out this bit, I'll write in the margin or is he writing a note in the margin that's not part of the original text and we know that scribes tend to think well, better put this in the text just to make sure and so these variants and vast majority of them are spelling differences and nonsense errors spelling variants the difference between the US and the British spelling of the word honour they take a U out we don't and so it makes no difference at all to the same word just spelling variation some of it is undoubtedly that they spell things differently in different places well the most common difference in the entire New Testament is the letter N the difference between an apple and a apple one of them is more grammatically correct they both mean the same thing or an hospital and a hospital hundred years ago it was correct to write an hospital now it's equally correct to write a hospital no difference and some of them nonsense errors is where someone's made a mistake and the text makes no sense very easy one John John's gospel 
chapter 1, verse 30, the true text says, as John the Baptist says, after me comes a man. Now the word man in Greek is aner. Someone left out the letter new in one of the copies we have, so it says after me comes air, which is the same in English and Greek. It makes no sense. After me comes a man. After me comes air. So we know which is the wrong reading. And the vast majority are like this. The second most common are stylistic differences. Differences in style. In Greek you can put the article, the word the, with a proper name. So you can say the Jesus did this. But of course we don't do that in English. And it makes no difference with the actual meaning of the text. And again, in Greek, word order is very flexible because a word's function, a sentence in Greek, depends on the ending you have to it, not the order of the words in the sentence. So, you can say the sentence, Jesus loves John, in 16 different ways in Greek, but only one in English. Stylistic differences that make no difference from the meaning of the text. And there are some readings that we find in one or two very, very late manuscripts, or just one manuscript. And they may may make sense, but we say, well, there's no way that could be original. If it shows up 500 years after the book was written, there's no way that can be original if it just appears then. And then there are what we call the variants that are meaningful and viable. They're the ones that actually do affect what the text says. And they're a tiny, tiny minority. Less than 1% of the New Testament is affected by these. And most of them, well they may be meaningful, but they affect no, well in fact all of them affect no major teaching of the Bible. In fact, no teaching in the Bible at all. One of the most interesting is found in the book of Revelation, where two, well, you know what the number of the beast is in the Revelation. 666 is the number of the beast. Except in two very, very early, very, very important copies of the book of Revelation, the number of the beast is 616. Now, most scholars are agreed that 666 is the number of the beast, and 616 is the name of the beast. But if the number of the beast is 616, it doesn't make an enormous difference. It's not something that affects any major doctrine. No doctrine at all is affected, no teaching is affected by these variations. You can take any New Testament manuscript, and you will find they all teach the deity of Christ. They all teach Jesus God. They all teach there's only one God. They all teach that Jesus died for our sins. They all teach exactly the same thing. The differences don't affect what they teach, what they record. And so we can say the New Testament is reliable. It's a reliable record of history. And it's come down to us in a reliable form. And that means we have to take it very seriously indeed. It tells us of a man. 
The man Christ Jesus, it tells us that he is God with us, Emmanuel. It is the story, briefly, of God's redemption. And God's love to the world, there is no textual variant in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Every copy of John's Gospel contains that verse. And that is the great message of the Bible. The love of God in Jesus Christ. This is not myth. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous. Amen. Amen. Good stuff. So what did you think? Did you learn something? (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to get your feedback from this edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Good night.